I have endeavored to cut down on how long these Q&As are, so I'm only going to deal with two questions tonight. I had some others come in this week. I'm going to push those off till September or the next time that uh, I'm uh, preaching this, uh, these Q&A questions. Uh, our first question that was presented for us is one that I believe it's important for us to delve into. When we talk about proofs for the existence of God or arguments against the existence of God, uh, I believe that this is probably the strongest argument that the non-believer, the atheist, has with regard to God's existence as to whether it is plausible to consider that God exists. The question that was asked to me was, if God is so great, why do bad things uh, have to happen? Essentially, that was the question it was, as it was asked. I, I ask that you don't look it up now. You couldn't listen with the volume anyway. But I do recommend that you go to YouTube. There's about a two-minute video that is an interview with a man named Stephen Fry. If you can see that picture, you probably recognize his face if you watch TV and, and movies. He's the master of Lake Town in the Hobbit movies. He is Prime Minister Davies in the series uh, 24. Uh, he is Gordon Wyatt in the series Bones. And if you watch the American Sherlock Holmes movies, he's the older brother. So, very recognizable face. There is a British uh, television personality, news personality, by the name of Gay Byrne. And Mr. Byrne uh, often asks this question of his guests. And he asks it of Stephen Fry. He says, if you were to see God upon your death, what would you say to him? And Mr. Fry is a staunch atheist, very vocal atheist. And here was his reply. He says, I think I would say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you make a world in which there is so much pain and suffering? It goes on to say that he believes that God is capricious and mean-minded, that he would allow such injustice and evil to exist on this earth. And if you were to listen to him, I believe that on the face of it, it would seem like a very plausible argument to be made. If you were to meet a Mr. Fry, and chances are that somewhere along the line that you are going to meet a Mr. Fry, what would you say to them? In trying to get our minds wrapped around the problem of suffering and pain in this world, I think it's good for us to do what William Lane Craig suggests that we do. When we look at the problem of pain and suffering, it has at least two categories or two components to it. There is an intellectual argument and there is an emotional argument. The intellectual argument of pain and suffering is to ask, is it plausible that God and suffering can coexist in this world? From that standpoint, can we argue from the presence of suffering that it is impossible for God to exist? That's the intellectual argument. The emotional argument is this. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, then He would not create a world in which there is pain and suffering. Or another way to put it is, how can I like or love a God who allows a world in which pain and suffering exists? Now, when we think about the problem of pain and suffering, it's interesting to me that the Bible lays out for us a case of suffering that's almost unparalleled. In fact, I don't know of anyone who has been through more suffering that I've seen in modern life than the ancient patriarch Job. 
It's interesting that James would actually, in James chapter 5 and verse 11, point to Job's life as an example of God's compassion and his mercy. I don't know how much you remember about the story of Job, but that's not most people's first impression when they read the book of Job. That it reveals a a God of compassion and mercy. You remember what happens in Job's life? Job loses his wealth, he loses his children, he loses his health, and he loses his influence in the community. His wife tells him to curse God, and his friends come along and tell him that his suffering, his problems, are a curse from God. If there was ever anybody who ought to believe from the circumstances of their life that there was no God, or at least if there was a God that he wasn't loving and that he wasn't uh, powerful, it would have been Job. But we notice that Job couldn't see what was going on. He didn't see what was going on behind the scenes, and so what he did was he held on to his rope of faith. There are folks who are struggling and hurting, even good and godly children of God, who have experienced a massive amount of suffering. I realize that as I preach to you tonight, that I look across the audience, there are those of you who have experienced great tragedy and hurt and loss. And it might have, at least in the throes of that suffering, made you wonder if this was a proof of of, of God's failure to to exist, or at least a failure for there to be a God who is all-powerful and loving. I know of a gospel preacher in Mississippi who came home to his house in the fall of 2011 to see his wife and his son murdered by a man who had previously been arrested for molesting that wheelchair-bound son. For a decade, this man has wrestled with his faith in the wake of that. Or I think about perhaps a a circumstance that is symbolic of just what we're talking about. You may remember this if you're old enough. You'd have to be uh, my age or or not much younger than me. But do you remember that there was a huge volcano in Colombia in 1985? And in the wake of that uh, that, uh, volcano, there was a mudslide that obliterated several villages in Colombia. Over 23,000 people died. But it was a 13-year-old girl by the name of Amara Sanchez... And her circumstances. It was on the news for a couple of days in the news cycle. This 13-year-old girl was caught up in that mudslide and it killed a couple of her family members. A couple of them escaped. But she had her legs trapped under the roof as she was pushed by the mud. Her legs could not be freed. And she was stuck up in water up to her neck. But she could hear and she could talk. And she could be seen by rescuers. They would try to pull her out, but it was just impossible. And she even sang to one of the reporters that was on the scene. This went on for over 60 hours. Until finally this poor girl died from either hypothermia or gangrene. Someone would say as they look at that, How could there be a God? And if there is a God, how can we say he is all-powerful and all-loving for this to happen? Well, what's the answer to that? You see, if we don't have an answer to that, we might as well fold everything up and go home and try to just say everything, all the suffering in the world is senseless. But I want to make three observations that hopefully will at least allow us to begin to answer this question more fully. The first observation that I would want to make is this. Is it logically impossible for God and suffering to coexist? Can we draw the conclusion 
that God cannot exist? Is it logically, and as we begin to answer that, here's what we've got to look at. There is nothing that says that suffering and God are antithetical to one another. God is not the opposite of suffering, and suffering is not the opposite of God. When it comes to the components of this, the one who would deny the existence of God would say they believe that if God was all-powerful, God could create any world that he wanted to. And if God was all-loving, they would say that God would create a world in which there was absolutely no suffering. But are those plausible conclusions? Is it plausible to say that if God is all-powerful, that God could create any world that he wanted to? I would suggest to you that it's not possible that God could create any world that he wanted to if he was going to create mankind with the ability, the freedom to choose. That necessarily limits the world that God could make. And it's also a fallacy to suggest that if God is all-loving, he would prefer to create a world in which there was no suffering. God may have good reasons that we don't understand for allowing suffering to exist. Sometimes the existence of suffering can produce a good even though the suffering is there. We understand that. Those of you who have children that you take to the dentist and they have a cavity, you take them there and allow the the dentist to fill that cavity even though there's going to be some pain and some suffering because of the greater good that it can accomplish. From an intellectual standpoint... It does not hold, the intellectual argument does not hold to say that the existence of suffering makes the existence of God improbable because it's not logically the case. But I want to make a second observation, and that is, could God have good reasons for permitting suffering? Someone would say that the suffering that exists is unnecessary. But you see, we have a problem with that. If we are to assign the the idea that the suffering that exists is unnecessary, there are two problems that we've got to overcome. And here they are. First of all, there is human limitation. By our very nature, we're finite creatures. We are limited by space and by time. We are limited by intellect and insight. And God is not saddled in the way that we are. We have limitations We can't see everything, but God sees the end from the beginning, and He works in His providence toward the end of all things. And so as we think about the existence of everybody and all the time and events that take place, we're limited. We can't see what an all-seeing God can foresee. You may see that movie that's uh, up there. It's a movie from the late 1990s starring Gwyneth Paltrow. The, The movie's called Sliding Doors. I don't recall if I have seen that or not, but uh, I, I, I read the, the plot line of this and, and saw how very well it illustrates the point. In this particular movie, there is a young woman who is trying to uh, catch this, uh, going down to the subway platform to catch a train. And as she gets to the doors of that train, the movie splits into two different directions based on the, the, what happens in that moment. So in one of those moments, she is able to get inside of the doors of that subway and make the train. And in the other series of events that happen in that one moment, she misses boarding that train. And that one seemingly trivial event 
sets uh, their her life in two divergent paths that get different from one another. And we think about all the trivialities that happen up to that one point. And the, the difference that's made in the one scene of her life and the other scene of her life where it diverges is whether or not a little girl who's playing with her doll is pulled out of the way. In one of those scenes, the, the girl is picked up by her father and she's able to get on that train. And on the other side of that, she has prosperity, she has happiness, and she has success. But in the other scenario, the father's not able to get the little girl out of the way in time. She misses the subway, and as a result, there's failures, and there's misery, and there's unhappiness in her life. All because of one momentary event changed the trajectory of her life. Now, I hate to give away the endings of movies, and if you don't want to hear this, then uh, just, just tune me out for just a minute. But in one of these, the one in which she boards the train, she has the successful, the happy, prosperous life, she is killed in a tragic accident not long after that. But in the other one where she misses the train and therefore the events that follow that, the failures and the unhappiness turn around and she finds out ultimately that that was the happy life. Now you think about one event in a movie, I know it's fictitious, but I think it illustrates very well the fact that there are almost 8 billion people on the planet, and each of us is going through a series of seemingly innocuous events throughout every day of our life, and here's a God that superintends all of that, who is working through all time and events, not limited like we are, to accomplish the good that he's wanting there to be in this world. And so as we look and sit in judgment of the pain and suffering and and as we try to disparage God's character, we need to recognize our own human limitation and he's not limited like we are. But there's another observation to make and that is that there is how suffering makes much more sense through the lens of Scripture. The suffering that exists in this world makes much more sense for one who believes what God says in His Word than through an impersonal view that takes God out of the picture. If there is no God and the suffering exists in this world, life makes far less sense than it does for three reasons. Because number one, the chief purpose of this life is not to secure our happiness. The chief purpose of our life is to know God. That's the mistake that one makes who tries to factor God out of the equation. That God does not have us here in order for us to experience happiness. God has us here so that we can come to know Him. And as we look at His Word, we come to understand what He wants from us and what He wants to give to us. And it's not just measured in this life, it's measured in the life to come, which we'll see in just a moment. But as we come to understand the scriptural prism of things, we see that when we are faced with suffering, it's going to allow us to do one of two things, either to act or react in anger and bitterness or to grow in our trust and dependency upon Him. As we look through Scripture and see the guidance of the Word of God, we see that God expresses His purpose through the church. God can allow the suffering and difficulty of our life so that we'll depend on Him more and to seek Him through His church. You know, some of the poorest places that I've been, third world countries, those people are so often much more receptive to God and His Word, uh, even despite the, the suffering that they go through. And the Bible bears this out, doesn't it? In James chapter 2 and verse 5, James says, Has not God chosen the, those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to all those that love Him? 
What about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 when he says that, um, that God has chosen the foolish things of this world and the weak things of this world and the things that are not to, to put to, to nothing the things that are to confound those that are strong and mighty. He says, you see how not many weak, not many, how many uh, uh, who are, are uh, uh, those who are without assets reach out to God. It's those who don't have them. So that no flesh will glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. And so as we come to look at suffering through the lens of scripture, we see that the chief purpose of this life is not our happiness, but the knowledge of God. But furthermore, we come to understand that mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and his purpose. If you don't believe in God's existence, that might catch you off guard. But the Christian is not surprised by this because the word of God has already pointed it out to us and so we can be prepared for this. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 25, the Apostle Paul speaks of those who exchanged the truth for a lie and they served and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And because they didn't see fit to hold God in their memory, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. You see, God allows free will and choice. And so God allows even the rebellious of humanity to go ahead and make those choices and let those things run their course. A lot of the suffering and the hurt in this world is because of man's inhumanity to man. Because God gives humanity the ability to choose right and wrong and the majority choose wrong. And so the suffering that exists in so many cases is because man is in rebellion against God's will. But a third and a very important factor is that God's purpose is not restricted to this life, but also encompasses eternal life. You see, somebody who, uh, who factors out God in the problem of pain and suffering does not realize that this world is really just a little valley in the middle of two gigantic mountains called eternity. We're only here for a little while. And God has something far greater prepared for us. If we can see life through that eternal perspective, then we're going to be like the Apostle Paul. The the things that we suffer and go through in this life cannot be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in the children of God, according to Romans chapter 8. Not only that, but once we're out in eternity, and we have the benefit of the hindsight of time being no more, the longer that we're there, if you can say it that way, the longer that we're in eternity, the less significant the pain and suffering of this life will be. Even if there are things that happen to us in this life that serve no earthly good, God will more than reward and compensate us with His blessings and His goodness out in eternity. I can't imagine how somebody who's trying to make it through this life without believing in the existence of God can face the suffering of this life that's going to be common to all of us. Job chapter 14 and verse 1, without an understanding of a biblical perspective that the suffering that we see is not only measured in this life, but in also in view of eternal life. We spent two points to look at the intellectual argument. And while it bears certainly, and I encourage you to do more study and more follow-up on that, I don't believe that the atheist or the non-believer can successfully make the intellectual argument that God and suffering cannot coexist. Even if we have some question about the goodness of God, we cannot use this to say that God does not exist. The argument intellectually fails. But I submit to you that most people who lean on the argument of pain and suffering 
are not depending on the intellectual argument. Even go back to Stephen Fry. As articulate as he is, he's not making an intellectual argument. He's making an emotional argument. So what about the emotional argument? What about the person who says this reflects on the goodness, the love, and the kindness of God? What do we do in the face of that? I'll tell you what, one of the most powerful tools that God has given to us as we're able to help people who are struggling with the problem of pain and suffering is not so much what we say, but what we do as a Christian. You have the opportunity as somebody is going through the struggling and suffering of this life to minister to them, to be Christ for them, to listen and to love them. What a powerful difference that that can make. But suppose that they do reach out to you and they ask for some kind of counsel as they're trying to make sense of all of this. We have an opportunity to point to them that that God is a loving Father. He is not a cold and distant, arbitrary being. We can point to a cross in which Jesus came and suffered and died for all mankind despite the fact that he was perfectly innocent. Why would he do that? Because of the great love that he had for us. God has you and uh, me here to be one of the powerful tools to help people who are struggling from the emotional side with the problem of pain and suffering. To allow us to point them to the answer that they are so desperately seeking. I want to share with you something that happened a few years ago. A man by the name of Tom Schmitz shared this story. He was visiting a nursing home and he came across a woman. She was strapped up in her wheelchair. The whites on the pupils of her eyes told Tom that she was blind. And the hearing aid that sat over one of her ears showed him that she was nearly deaf. Her face was eaten with cancer. A sore on her face had dislocated her nose, had dropped one eye, and had dislocated her jaw so that she drooled constantly. Tom became friends with this woman, 89-year-old woman who had been in that condition for almost 25 years. Her name was Mabel. And one day when Tom was visiting her in the nursing home, he went up to her and he asked, Mabel, what do you think about as you sit here all day? She said, I think about my Jesus. He said, what is it that you think about Jesus? She said, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been so good to me. As she thought about that, she said, you know, I suppose that people think that I'm old-fashioned, but I don't care. He means the world to me. And then she began to sing that old gospel song, Jesus is all the world to me. That's not fiction. That actually happened in the human life. You know, it's not the circumstances that happen to us. It's how we respond to that. There's not a logical argument through suffering to say that God doesn't exist. And there's not an emotional argument when we view through the lens of Scripture an understanding of our purpose and God's purpose for us. But to show that God is not the source of suffering, but God wants to give us everlasting joy in life. As it is with some of the things that we've dealt with in the question and answer, that's for me to try to whet your appetite and to point you in a direction and encourage you to to study more deeply in that. Perhaps you have follow-up questions that you want to ask with regard to this, and I I would love to handle those if I'm able uh, to, to do so. Completely changing direction. Are there any uh, directives in the Bible about cremation? 
I might tell you, I'm 51 years old. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on cremation. I don't know that I've read an article written by our brethren on the subject of whether cremation is right or wrong. So I began to look at some of the various resources, that uh, Bible encyclopedias and dictionaries, and in the, the face of that, I was surprised at how the, a lot of those sources seemed to look disfavorably on the practice of cremation. A couple of arguments were given in regards to that. One was that the ancient Jews, God's Old Testament chosen people, uh, did not practice cremation, that they associated it with heathen practices. Uh, another argument they make is that if you study the annals of early church history, that there aren't examples of cremation among uh, the people of God. Even a, a reference to a Roman historian by the name of Cicero, uh, who had no dog in the hunt, as we would say, but who said that he thought that burial was the more ancient practice. Well, some would take answers like this and would say, well, I'm not sure it's right for there to be cremation. Well, what's important to us, Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias serve some good, but I think the thing we always want to know is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say in any kind of passages, examples, or principles? I don't know that we're going to have a satisfactory answer from passages and examples, but there are some principles I'd like to share with you in just a moment. But there is the practice of something like cremation in Scripture. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 12 and 13, you might remember that Saul and his sons are fighting the Philistines, and God has already foretold through Samuel, Saul, that he's going to die in this battle. And so they're up there, and they've been killed by the Philistines, and the Philistines are mutilating their bodies, have them nailed against the wall. And to, uh, to, to keep them from being desecrated, being the king of Israel, some valiant Israelite soldiers come and pull them off the wall and burn their bodies. In, in essence, cremate them. Now, there are times in the old law where there are passages that are written against the practice of burning bodies or it is demonstrated as a punishment for sin. You might look at Leviticus 20 and verse 14. Leviticus 21 and verse 19, or remember what God does to Achan and his family in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 25. But on the other side of that, you might remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3 that it is an act of great sacrifice of one's faith to give their bodies to be burned. Now, he says if you do it without love, it profits you nothing. But it sounds like that the implication is it could be profitable. It doesn't have to be without profit. So we've got to approach this from the standpoint of principles that can help us to decide what the, how God feels about cremation. So here they are. First of all, ancient customs do not serve as a precedence for us today. Just because things were done under certain cultural circumstances at a different time in history is a neutral thing. It doesn't serve as a pattern for us today. So whatever the Jews may have done, whatever the early Christians may have done in their cultural practice is not an authority for us today. Number two, we need to recognize that death is the separation of the body and the spirit. James says that, right, in James chapter 2 and verse 26. And so when the spirit departs from the body, the body begins the process of decay, and ultimately that body is going to wind up part of the dust, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. Seems to me that cremation is simply the acceleration of that process. Someone might say, but won't that interfere with the new body and the resurrection? I love what Guy and Woods had to say about this. He, he said... 
that there are no doubt those who saints who have died centuries ago, whose bodies decomposed and became part of what ultimately was a tree. And that tree was uh, harvested for timber or for firewood and was ultimately burned. The Almighty Hand can reconstitute those bodies in the resurrection. And I believe that being the case, that certainly it is the case that for those who have died and have chosen to be cremated, that God can reconstitute their bodies in the resurrection. A third point to make is, is that whatever position that we come up to has got to be one that we can consistently hold in every situation. What about the Christians who were burned at the stake? Or what about Christians who die in a house fire, whose bodies are consumed? Or those who die in a plane crash or as a result of, of a, a bombing? Or think about what happens in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember as they're standing up against the, the, the king of Babylon? They're saying that uh, even if God doesn't deliver them, then they're still going to worship and serve him and not to, to betray their God. Now, as it turns out, we can look back and see that God spared them. But if they had not been spared and they might not have been, they would have been cremated. We've got to be consistent. So, so here's kind of the conclusion of that. We want to make sure that we deal with death and the body in a dignified way. We also want to be in line with, our, with the customs of our culture. There was probably a time earlier in our history when cremation was more frowned upon and burial was the more ordinary choice that was taken in the culture. I believe that you've noticed like I have that there's been a shift in that culture. The taboo of that has long been dispensed with. And as we think about what's done with regard to cremation, I've heard some very good arguments made by children of God. That it is that they've chosen the route of cremation for financial reasons or for stewardship reasons as it's cheaper to, to undergo cremation than to have the body buried in a traditional funeral. There's also sometimes an argument made by someone who says that I really don't want to be on display after this life. And that being the case, closed casket being as it is, I would just as soon be cremated. I do know this. Based on what I can see from Scripture, that this is definitely one of those Romans 14, 13, and 14 situations. That it's left up to the Christian liberty of the individual to choose whichever one of those two that they desire. And again, I'm faced with uh, giving an invitation in, in, the, in the wake of that. Suffering and, and dying is a reality. It's going to happen. What God wants us to do is to be prepared for that. Knowing that suffering is a part of a fallen world, He gave the solution to it. He sent His Son to come and to die in our place so that we might have eternal life. That we could successfully navigate the issues of this life. And yes, it's important for us to think about and plan about our physical death, but it's far more important for us to be prepared for eternal life. The question tonight is this, have you made preparation for it? Are you ready for that great day? Are you ready to spend your eternity with Christ? He tells us how to do that. If you've not yet made the decision to become a child of God, why not believe the great love He had for you, the sacrifice He made in your place? Repent of your sins and be baptized. And if you're a child of God who's taken your eyes off the prize, why not come back to Him and be restored? Live faithfully unto death for Him so that you might receive a crown of life. If this is your invitation, we would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.